excited for yet another episode of The Spirit of Haggard. I am your host, Jody Lynch Findlay, and we have a special treat today. Um, I get really excited when we start talking about words like legacy and tribute and, you know, really digging into the story behind Haggard and all that goes into The Spirit of Haggard. We are joined today with such a special guest, and we are actually going to be treated to the conversation of a tribute from one surgeon to another. So we have a lot of history to talk about with one of our current surgeons here at Haggard. And without further ado, I will introduce Dr. Bob Hunt. Dr. Hunt, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, we're excited to jump in. So I will start by asking some questions about your journey. That has really been the beauty for our listeners with this podcast is the story of Haggard and each individual person's contribution to the spirit of Haggard. And so I I did hear a little rumor that in 2023, we are celebrating a 30-year service anniversary for you. I, congratulations. No, like, thank, you. thank you. Incredible. Yeah, um, does it seem like just yesterday or does it seem like 30 years? <laughs> it's like both. It's a... Uh... It's been long, but it's uh, such a uh, such a dynamic lifestyle. It it, it flies by. It's uh, it's a very progressive practice. You know, we have the greatest clients, the greatest horses, the greatest faculty on staff, and so it's it's very dynamic. You know, we're always exposed to young people. You know, young minds are coming in, so it it keeps you on your toes. We're always seeing tour groups and new interns, externs. So I, I love that um, we can celebrate not only the, the new blood coming into the practice, but, you know, in your case, certainly 30 years. What a tremendous legacy. Your journey, I think, much like many others, is a little bit of East Coast, West Coast, and some in That's between. Mm-hmm. And um, a probably, you know, a special interest, it sounds like, in podiatry and farrier work. So I'll, I'll let you walk us through what that journey was. Well, I've had a lifetime experience with horses, uh, mostly came from my mother's side. And uh, showing horses, I did my first apprenticeship for shoeing when I was 12. They sent me away from home. And, uh, you know, we were showing horses. And that's about the time we got got involved with race horses as well. And uh, it just evolved from that. I've always uh, dabbled in it. And I've always known I was going to be a veterinary surgeon. Uh, probably since I was 10 years old, I had no idea what one was. But uh, <laughs> I, I knew that's what I was going to do. That's uh, what was you were going to do. do. So, uh, I went to veterinary school in, uh, at the University of Georgia. Okay. And uh, in 1983, I went to California to do an externship at uh, that Animal Pintado Clinic. Who was there's some familial connections to Jimmy Moore, who was one of my uh, professors. His sister was the, the wife of the owner of the practice, Doug Herthel. And okay. so he and Charlie Bowles uh, would have been some of my initial mentors. And uh, 
spent about three and a half years at Alamo Pintado, first as an intern and as a surgeon, then moved back to Georgia to complete a surgery residency and uh, some graduate work and did research. And uh, in, in the process, prior to my veterinary school, uh, I was shoeing horses around the Athens area when I was in undergraduate school. And one of my biggest clients was a medicine clinician who was a resident at Georgia at the time. It was Doug Byers. Oh, wow. So he uh, eventually he, he moved up here halfway through my he helped. He was instrumental in my getting into veterinary school. And, and, and actually in my uh, transit up here, he introduced me to uh, Dr. Thorpe. And I'd, I'd probably been operating eight or nine years before I moved here. Okay. And it took one day of working with Paul just in the interview, and I, you know, I knew this was where I was going to be. So uh, the, Paul and I shared the surgery probably for the first fifteen years I was here. Okay. And uh, he he ended up departing and going on his own uh, yes. after that, but it, it was uh, certainly the highlight of my career. Wow! You know, being able to share the surgery with him, and I learned. Uh, so much. We were very like-minded, and he was already doing all these things I had I wanted to do, and so I just walked right into his theater, and uh, there it all was. And my whole career was like that. Okay, yeah, for me. Uh-huh. Well, it's just such a powerful story, and and I don't want to skim over certainly your journey and the highlights of that. But what a great transition into, you know, today's episode as we discuss a legacy and the tribute to Dr. Paul Thorpe. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a couple words. Any, I, I did not have the honor of meeting Dr. Thorpe ever. But when you read about him and you hear so much about him in this central Kentucky space and in equine veterinary medicine, not only just in the United States, but also globally, and you hear words like pioneer, brilliant and instinct. And then you also hear humble and that he was honest and so clear with people and dedicated to his patients. So there are just so many powerful statements made about his life and his legacy as an equine surgeon. Yeah, he he was just so instrumental in so many of our careers and uh, the influence that he had on us, uh, some of his unique approaches to things. And you're right, the, the humility thing can't be overstressed. He was he was probably the most bare-bones, basic, humble guy you'll ever meet. And uh, it just no nonsense to him. You know, there, there's just so many of his integrity was always unquestionable. He had just such an interesting background. He was a helicopter pilot in uh, Vietnam. Uh, so he's a war veteran, had a Purple Heart. It had uh, had six helicopter crashes he survived through, and he, you know he brought that intensity with him. And uh, you know my connection through Dr. Byers, they were classmates. Okay. In veterinary school, and so when Doug came up here and formed the medicine clinician or clinic here, he uh, you know he it, it was a natural segue for me. Perfect. And again, you bring up great points. I did read that he was a Vietnam War vet um, and also that on his final mission, he was hit by shrapnel, which lodged near his eye. Mm-hmm. And and again, I just, you know, it speaks to character. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And he, he would, you know, he was physically a very tough individual with tremendous endurance. He just had a a work ethic that just never stopped. Was unmatched. Mm -hmm. One of your colleagues, uh, a quote that I read, he probably deserved a lot more attention and accolades. He's kind of an unsung hero of the sport and he shunned publicity. 
I forced his name on one paper that I did, <laughs> and he was so mad at me. <laughs> yeah, he, he wanted, like I said, I think it just went to his humility. You know, he just, he wanted no recognition for any of the things that he did. You know, he needed the, the unique surgeries that he was involved with, um, just his mannerisms of helping people. You know, he would, he would give you the shirt off his back. Wow a pioneer in many surgeries, you know, that, that you've mentioned here, you know, our audience has continued to learn so much when we talk about the innovation and the standard of excellence, not only in central Kentucky, but here at Haggard. And so let's dig into what he was a pioneer of and, and give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Well, I think to, to start out with the philosophy of it, where a lot of them came from, is his desires all through veterinary school were to be a food animal practitioner. He had no idea, you know, no desire to do surgery. And I think he just stumbled in with Dr. Davidson when he moved to Central Kentucky. And Dr. Davidson would dabble with surgery, worked on a lot of racehorses, and he was the predecessor to us all. And uh, and, you know, Paul, just in his respect, would would follow Dr. Davidson around and do things his way. One of the probably most, most notable advances Paul was responsible for was some of the techniques we use in our colic surgeries even today. You know, he would, he would certainly be a pioneer. You know, we were, they were doing them all over the country, you know, in, in Southern California, Florida. Everybody was trying them. Paul was one of the first ones that figured out efficient ways to get into an abdomen and get it closed and have the horses survive. Wow. You know, it was a, a prompt surgery. Some of the unique things that, that uh, other techniques from that would be like uh, these recurrent problems we have in broodmares with uh, colon torsions or the uh, colon volvulus, their large intestine gets out of place and it kills them in very rapid order. So it's an emergency situation. And Paul made the connection on a resurgery. He saw that the cecum, another part of the same as our appendix, was adhered to the body wall through a prior incision and it gave him the idea what if I just sew the colon into the incision? And so that's where he started started that that technique of the colopex. The other ones are gone, but they're much more complicated. This is a a much simpler technique than uh, than we do in other places. Wow. Mm. And you know, I always ask. You may not know off the top of your head, but the number of surgeries that were done in a day at that point in time, or even that are done now. You know, uh, in these walls, talk to us about the volume. Yeah, we we do high traffic. Uh, you know, during the, the busy season, you'll average anywhere twenty five to thirty five surgeries a day. You know, we've done up to as, as much as fifty with two of us working. Wow. Well, that speaks then to I think you have a pretty innovative space here, and and who gets the credit for for that? The initial construct was largely designed by Paul. You know, he said there was, he worked in conjunction with another architect. And it, and it is such a unique floor design yes. uh, that you'll never you'll not find anywhere. But that's the reason you know we have a ledge for the quick surgeries, the small conformational surgeries. We'll anesthetize the patient and operate them right on the ledge of the recovery stall where we're standing down in the down in the pit. And mm-hmm. uh, and then we use that same system. We can drop a horse in the recovery stall, put it on the table, wheel it into a surgery suite if it's a major orthopedic or a colic. While we're in there doing that. We can be doing another surgery in the recovery stall at the same time while this one's being prepped. Wow. And so it, it really enhances the traffic flow quite a bit. 
It is impressive. And, and I'll remind our, our listeners, you know, if you've not listened to some of our previous episodes, please go back and do so. But one thing that will encourage you is to come visit. Come visit and take a tour here at Haggard. Um, you may just bump into Dr. Hunt and you'll get to see, you know, the surgery space that he is talking about and, you know, just the amazing uh, work that goes on here each and every day. So uh, I, I always like to make sure that we encourage our listeners to Absolutely. come visit. Yep. <laughs> Let's pause for just a minute to hear from our friends at Bymeda, our Spirit of Haggard podcast sponsor. Biomita might just be the largest animal health company you have never heard of until now. Biomita Animal Health's equine products have been trusted by veterinarians and horse owners since the 1960s where our Irish roots began. Biomita is one of the largest producers of dewormers for horses like Equimax, Bimectin, Duramectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes rely on polyglycan, a patented formula designed to replace lost or damaged synovial fluid, and Confidence X 1% pheromone gel that reduces and prevents equine stress, to name a few of our branded products. We encourage you to consult with your equine veterinarian before using any equine products for your horse. Also, please visit buymetaus.com to learn more about our full product offerings and where you can buy them. For you, tell us a little bit more about your favorite surgeries. Like you, You've been a surgeon now for a few years. So tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I obviously like the challenging surgeries, you know, the very difficult orthopedics, fracture repairs, the difficult colics, you know, diaphragmatic hernias, things that are really going to keep you on your toes where you have to think fast, make the right decision. It makes the difference in life or death. And so those, those are very stimulating. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, cesarean sections, doing dystocias and things because – you know, it's the difference in a client having a productive animal or having nothing. Right. So th- those are probably, but I always kind of joke when people ask me that question all the time on the busy days, you know, maybe doing <laughs> a throat surgery, then orthopedic, then a colic, and bouncing back and forth. And you say, you say, which one is your favorite one? I say, usually the one I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love yeah. that. And as long as you can still say that, well, right? You know, and again, it's, yeah, I'm. I'm as enthusiastic as I was in, you know, 20, when I was 25 years old about it. Incredible. So, yeah. What would you tell your 25-year-old self today? Don't make bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I think gain as much knowledge as you can possibly gain. Uh, you know, try to just keep an open mind. You right. Know, don't pigeonhole yourself and, uh, you know, stay as diverse as you possibly can as well. And and probably importantly, as much as you love it, don't let it run your life, you know, because yeah. uh, if it runs your life, it can ruin your life. <laughs> there you go. We talk a lot about that today, but I'm going to back up. You mentioned to remain diverse. So tell us a little bit more about that. I think that, again, we've got a lot of young listeners who are really making decisions about what direction they want to go? Are they pursuing equine veterinary medicine and in what way? So tell us a little bit more about, about that as a surgeon. Yeah, uh, well, exactly that. Try to expose yourself to as many disciplines in the profession as you can. You know, it, it, when you're early and just coming out, you know, there's nothing that says, you know, you, you have to only work on, you know, infected joints on babies or anything. Yes. You know, you can, we're much like human medicine was through the 60s. 
in okay. 70s. And that it's, you know, those were, we always coined them the, the golden years of medicine. And we still have that latitude where we can do, you know, I look back at my dad and he was very good. You know, he could do internal medicine. He could deliver, he could do a cesarean. He could do an open heart surgery. You know, you're, you're not, we, we really don't have boundaries on us necessarily. You know, we, we're, we put our own boundaries on and decide that, you know what, I'm only going to do lameness. Right. And, uh, and, and try to just stick with this one discipline. I, I'd go nuts. You know, I'm a general surgeon and have a lot of subspecialties that being whatever walks in the door. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, it's, I think it helps keep the interest up and helps prevent burnout. You right. Know, expose yourself to other colleagues. Ask questions. You know, don't don't try to be the lone ranger. Right. You know, there's there's a lot of people out there, a lot smarter than I am, that uh, haven't been able to gut it out. You know, I think they just uh, try to pigeonhole themselves into a small area, and uh, finally you get burnt out and can't survive it. Right. I love that advice, Dr. Hunt. I think that, you know, we get asked those questions all the time about, you know, how do you survive today as an equine veterinarian? Mm -hmm. And then you have talked about the very specific journey of becoming an equine surgeon. And so encouraging our listeners and our young veterinarians to really uh, experience you know, to your point, the diversity of the profession and make sure that they're building that network. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we probably aren't um, sharing that advice maybe enough of just how important it is. Where at a practice like Haggard, there are, you're surrounded by excellent veterinarians. And so the phone a friend, as, as some of our other veterinarians have called it, at any hour of the day or night is really invaluable. So talk about how that has um, evolved through the course of your career, really, those those relationships with your peers. Well, uh, yeah, they've certainly been an integral component to, you know, my advancement. Uh, I used to do a lot more lecturing than I do now. And so when you're in that inner circle of uh, lecturing nationally and internationally, you've got a population of people you're exposed to and bouncing off. And again, our, our local resources, you know, I've got four or five experts, one door down from me, yeah. you know, if I have something to fall back on. And again, the, the young people, you know, I don't care if you're 30 years old, you know, you, you still need engagement. And then once you start getting some years on you, um, you know, there's just the enthusiasm and the bright minds of the young people keep you stimulated. So oh, much. I love you know, that. It's, you know, I, I, I think it's just imperative uh, for your survival. Perfect. And, you, you know, you, you just have to love the job and the profession. You really do. It's, it's a, it's a game. I had a, a, uh, food animal practitioner when I was in school, I looked up to so much and name was John McCormick. And he, he taught me a tremendous lesson. And I asked him cause he had done everything from, he'd worked on horses. He worked on cattle. He'd done small animal practice. He was a surgeon, medicine person. And he settled out, running an ambulatory truck at the University of Georgia. And I asked him why he did it, and he said, this is the one thing he can do that he he's sure he can help put bread on a guy's table. And and I take that same philosophy as if I can help my clients survive in this industry and in this game and, and make right choices for them, and then they're going to do better, I'm going to do better. 
And, wow. so, and, it, and it happens, you know, Dr. Zen always told me, one of the senior guys that was here, and, and he, he always says, and he, he hit it right on the head. He says, you know, you're really going to enjoy it. He told me probably my first year here, he said, you're going to enjoy this so much just getting to know when you get inside one of these farms and you're living with these guys after generation after generation, said, you know, you're going to know, you know, the fifth and sixth generation out of these families. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to operate on the mama, you know, pull the baby. You're going to watch that one go off and train. You're going to work on it when it comes back. She's going to have babies. You know, you know so, you know, you get the drift. It, uh, yes. You know, it's very, uh, very rewarding. Yes. You know, to see these families after families. Yeah, it hooks many of us. Yeah, it it does. does. The magic of, you know, this industry. So I think that's tremendous. And again, you know, the relationships, it's, and, and that speaks to my passion. My passion, the answer to that question for me is always the people, right? I, for me, it's the people. I love the people. And the, these stories just make such an impact. So for our listeners to be able to, you know, really, again, I always say, take a peek behind the curtain of what can sometimes be an intimidating space, whether we're talking about the thoroughbred industry or central Kentucky or Haggard, you know, you come here kind of wide eyed and you are like, Oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. this is, this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. So the encouragement to say this is real and these people are, are really caring about every aspect of the industry and veterinary medicine. So that covers peer relationships, but let's dig back in a little bit to the mentorship. And the reason you wanted to talk a little bit more about Dr. Thorpe today. So how did you end up? I mean, you, you said you just ended up with him. And so that was on purpose, right? But the mentorship and the approach that he took with you as a mentor and you as a mentee, can you uncover some of that for us? It's probably somewhere around hero worship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not to be funny, but uh, yeah, I just respected him so much. Yeah. You know, I, I met Paul initially was probably in the mid '80s when they were he was still over at the other uh, facility, mm-hmm. what's now Brookledge. Okay, and uh, it uh, I, I met him then. I said, "Wow, this is a legend." I mean, he he was already a legend by that time. Yeah, and then it was several years later. I was coming to the area in the, the late '80s and early '90s, doing mostly podiatry stuff, and uh, for some of the shakes, Doug Byers brought me by to to meet Paul. And then he dropped me off with him for a day and said, you know, why don't you stay here? And, and, and I mean, from there, it, it just blossomed. You know, there was never any concern for money, you know, never any concern for time off. It, it's just yeah. purely a passion for, you know, wanting to do the job. And he, and Paul, I think immediately, I, the biggest thing I recognize is this was the only guy that I ever met that had the same passion for surgery that I did. And still to this day, I'll say it. Yes, just really unique. And other mentors that you have had in mm-hmm. this journey, um, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I've, uh, I, I am the ultimate example of Forrest Gump in the veterinary world. As far as, you know, even through school, I was taken under the wing of Jimmy Moore and Nat White and Doug Allen and these guys and Doug Byers. And uh, when I went to California, it was Charlie Bowles, you know, Herthel, yeah. uh, Mark Rick. And then I, I moved back to Georgia, and it was kind of a new faculty there. And then 
you know, found my journey up here. That's that's a list of who's who in equine veterinary yeah, medicine it, it that is. you're listing yeah. off. Yeah, and, you know, Steve Reed, all of them. You know, it's a very close little circle that we all yeah. ran in. Um, and, you know, up here, the you know, one of the big, most enamoring things was looking at some of the, the prior generation, you know, the Walters and uh, Dave Fish back, Richard Holder, that crew, and watch those guys work. I mean, it's a work of art. And uh, anybody, you know, all the young veterinarians, I used to try to make my interns go ride with these guys. Say, if you want to learn how to be a veterinarian, yeah, go sit in a truck with these guys. They'll show you how to work. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so um, now certainly you're at a point where you are providing mentorship to others. So as you mentioned, you know, some of those students that spend their time with you, tell us a little bit about your view of pursuing mentors and how to be a great mentee, really. So, you know, as we speak to our student audience, especially, um, what would we tell them? I guess learn to uh, learn to listen, think for yourself mm-hmm. and love the profession. You know, it's the biggest thing is this Fall in love with it. Don't be intimidated by it. I can be easily intimidated by things myself, but this is one thing. My my discipline is one thing that I've never been intimidated by, and that's probably why I do it. Yeah. But, I mean, it's like anything else. I think you need to jump in if your personality's fit. You know, don't be scared. Go stick your nose in. I mean, those are the most enjoyable youngsters we have coming through. You know, the kids that just... They're there till after hours trying to learn things. Even if they're not on duty, right. they're in there helping out. You know, you need to, you know, the 150% rule, you know, I think it yes. definitely, definitely applies. Is you have to apply yourself. You know, I try to, you know, we all try to respect um, respect the desires, the needs for, for anybody else to make it an inviting, enjoyable profession. Yes, but it, it is a demanding profession. I think, you know, if you're going to be at the top of the game, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you, there needs to be a level of dedication there that goes above and beyond. I don't want to go have an open heart surgery by somebody that just, I'm sorry, I've got, I've got tea time today or, you know, I'm out <laughs> golfing. I want the guy that's at the Mayo Clinic doing like 70 of them a week. Yes. You know, that's, uh, that's very proficient. You know, we're a very technical profession. And I think the the ten thousand rule applies, you know, to to get a level of expertise. Okay. And so I think you define the ten thousand rule. For, you got to do something ten thousand times before you're good at it. That's right. Okay. So as long as our students hear that, we have to do something ten thousand times before we're good at it. So keep doing it. Let's take a quick break to recognize our Spirit of Haggard podcast sponsor, Bymeda. Bimeda might be the biggest animal health company you've never heard of until now. Bimeda's products have been trusted by veterinarians and owners since the 1960s when our Irish roots began. Bimeda is one of the largest producers of dewormers like Equimax, Bimectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes also rely on polyglycan, a patented formula that replaces lost or damaged synovial fluid in Confidence X pheromone gel, which reduces and prevents equine stress. Consult your vet and visit buymediaus.com to see where to buy. You mentioned intimidation, and I often think that that can present as fear, right? Or, you know, we we get into a space and we certainly um, have, have a fear of failure. 
And I think that looks different today for some of our students. And I want to, I want them to hear from you what your advice would be when we say we don't want you to be afraid to fail. Can you talk to us about failure? If you don't fail, you don't learn. It took me three times past my boards. You know, it took me three years to get a residency. <laughs> so, yes. You know, you, you know, you, you, it's part of life's lessons because every college you open up is not going to survive. Every leg you repair is not going to do well. Every elective surgery you do may die under anesthesia. They may break a leg standing up. You know, so that that's an inherent part of it. The best you can learn or the best you can do is the best that you can. Cross your T's, dot your I's, take care of all the details, make sure you've done your homework. If it fails, recognize the failure, beat yourself up for a couple of hours, and then don't do it again. Yes. Great. And I, I can't help but go back because I love to point these, these things out for our student listeners is that you took the boards three times. Mm-hmm. You are a renowned surgeon and certainly one of the top surgeons in equine veterinary medicine in the world. You took your boards three times and then you said you had one other three-time try. Uh, even getting a residency. Getting a residency. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for our listeners to hear that. So especially mm-hmm. as we speak to the audiences, you know, that are listening today, students that are interested, again, it goes back maybe to that fear of failure and um, we're, we're scared to fail mm-hmm. and that's going to happen. Yeah. So if it takes two times or three times or four times to get into vet school, but you're, you're that passionate, mm-hmm. if it takes two times or three times or four times to pass your boards, but you're that passionate, that's part of the journey. It is. It's all part of it. And nobody goes through life without failing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, that's what life is. It's right. uh, what you do with it at the end of the day that's important. You know, as long as you learn and you get better. Great. So what else would you share with our listeners? And again, I, I just always like to kind of be their voice and say, we've got these great listeners who are students. Sometimes these are students who are considering a career in veterinary medicine. Other times they are pursuing that career, or certainly they're in that transition period from student to professional and maybe about to walk in the doors of Haggard. And so share some of your your best advice. As far as going into veterinary medicine, I'll back I'll digress a little bit. The people that want it, I don't think you could have a better profession as far as yeah. the the breadth of what you can acquire, you know, whether you're going into medicine or surgery, pharmaceutical sales, alternative medicines, imaging, anesthesia, you can specialize down to as low as you want to, to the point of doing oncology or something. Mm-hmm. So the world, I mean, it's, it's just a wide open palette for you as far as let's go into medicine. Going into uh, a, a particular discipline, whether you're going into equine medicine or equine surgery, you know, again, don't pigeonhole yourself too quick. Uh, you know, keep a, a very wide, I mean, those, like, I've always learned so much from our reproductive veterinarians, the, the people and, you know, in the different disciplines, you know, establish, establish a rapport with as many people as you can. You know, keep yeah. those lines open and, you know, go have a beer with them or sit down and talk to them about it because they can, you know, there's always somebody that's going to give you an idea somewhere. 
And it's going to trigger your mind to think of a new idea, a new approach to your own discipline. Yes. And so, uh, again, that, that was relating back to my diversification. Right. So, and uh, curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Stay, yeah. stay curious. Okay. Yeah. I love that. Grow that network, that team, that family, and, you know, really kind of lean on them. So as we wrap up, um, again, I want to give all credit where credit is due. You know, this is certainly just a tremendous episode, right, as a tribute to Dr. Paul Thorpe. So will you wrap us up with a little bit more about Dr. Thorpe? Do you have a particular story? Please share with us what our listeners need to know about this, this legacy that brought us here. Well, I think just his character would be the biggest thing. Just his character, how he dealt with people, um, was every bit as as intriguing. Uh, He had some of the biggest clients in the world and handled them so professionally. I started maybe with one quote, and there was another one that I had to jot down, and that was just four words, amazing friend and guide. Correct. (laughs) Yeah, it sums him up. So his impact on... Mm -hmm you and this practice and oh, this industry. Yeah, it's indescribable. You know, you just, um, he was so unique and so instrumental. He had a huge life outside of veterinary medicine. You know, he was a guide. For, he was a hunting guide in Colorado. He would take off in the fall, go hunt elk. And wow. uh, he was, a, you know, he was a scout and a guide for other people. You know, he's a very good mechanic, good builder. He built his one of his houses here himself. Um, and so just just very talented guy. But, you know, probably the the biggest feature I liked about him, with as smart as he was, he had the greatest ability to simplify a problem down to the bare bones. And, and I think that's why, you know, he helped me so much in surgery and, and all the young people he's influenced is that, you know, we want to take 10 steps to do two steps. Yes. If we do this, we're so smart, then we're going to do this, then we're going to go to, you know, plan C and then D, and then Paul would go straight from plan A, and then we'd be at plan D. You know, he knew how to simplify something and and just get the bare bones done. Right. And that guaranteed. And I think part of that, he he brought with him the philosophy for what it takes to be a, a good food animal practitioner. Okay. You know, you just go in and treat them simple. Don't treat them like complicated horses. Treat them like cattle. Yeah. He surviving. There's never been a more successful surgeon than he was. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I um. I think that we could certainly talk about Dr. Thorpe, and we could talk about your career for days, right? And mm-hmm. and there are plenty of stories. Now you laughed a little bit, but I I will just remind our listeners if they want to they want to hear some of those more colorful stories that they need to come and visit. So, again, as we wrap up, anything else that our listeners need to know? The door is always open. You know, we, we may bark sometimes. <laughs> it's a little tense, but don't be offended. Right. You know, but the door is always open. You know, you're not going to get in unless you walk in the door. Yes. And oh, uh, I love that. Yeah. Stick your, you know, stick your face in, introduce yourself, put your, uh, you know, just get right in our face. Literally, it's, it's, it's always, a, you know, always an open door. We have plenty of young people for the young people that want to come in that are very inviting and like to give tours, like to hang out for the day or anything. But 
it's it's a very interesting career. It's so unique, and and I get paid money for doing it. Yeah. So. I love your passion for it. I also, you know, again, I'm, I'll probably keep coming back, but you have painted a beautiful picture for us also, Dr. Hunt, that, you know, you're very adamant about work ethic and doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. But you were also quick to talk about not only Dr. Thorpe, but your your life. Like, it's not that you don't have a life outside of equine veterinary medicine. So I think that's important mm-hmm. um, for, for our listeners to hear that the expectations are high, but the reward is great. Yes. Yeah. You don't have to be run by it, uh, but the reward at the end of the day is is so big. You know, it's, uh, I, I don't think, you know, there are very few things I could have done to have that same feeling, you know, the same satisfaction when you've, you've got a, you know, I mean, my favorites, favorite surgeries probably historically have been, you know, the 12-year-old uh, girl with her little pony club horse. Yes. You know, uh, taking intestine out and having, you know, a horse, a pony that was going to be dead, you know, yes. that the kids come in the room with me while we're resecting it yeah. and um, take them home, you know, and, and I mean, it's just, you know, got a just boatload of those, and they yeah. truly are the, you know, the highlight of my career. Yeah, that gives me chills because I was the twelve-year-old girl peering through the viewing window, you know, um, for a colic surgery one one day, yeah. and so yeah, I just I love that. Yeah. So there's a lot of power, there's a lot of passion. Um, again, I can't thank you enough for sharing so much yeah. with us today yeah. because these these stories are truly making this the spirit of Haggard, right? And um, people want to know. And the more humanity we bring, uh, the more response we get from our listeners and the more interest there is in the industry and Haggard. So thank you for all thank your you time. Thank you for having me. Thank uh, you. Very much appreciated. I'm honored. Well, I am also. So we will say thank you for joining us for another episode of The Spirit of Haggard. And with that, Thank you, Dr. Hunt. Thanks for tuning in to the Spirit of Haggard podcast today, sponsored by Bymeda. I'm your host, Jody Lynch Findlay, speaker and podcaster. You can connect with me at jodyspeakslife.com.